I looked at schools and school reform and the history of school reform. And it's been a real, um, it's been a travesty. It hasn't addressed what really young people desperately need. And essentially what they need is they need adults who look them in the eye and know them by name and mentor them. So they need something other than teaching. Teaching can come along with mentoring. But if you don't have a relationship with someone that, that's trying to teach you, there's a very, um, there's a lot of limitation on what you're going to get from that. Today's Unreasonable Human is radically changing people's perceptions of how children and adolescents should be educated. He has worked in public and private education for 30 years, has a doctorate in educational leadership, and his 2008 dissertation focusing on adolescent development and middle school reform won the Dissertation of the Year Award in UCLA's Educational Leadership Program. His name is Dr. Paul Aston. Hi, Dr. Paul. Hi, Erica. It's so lovely to have you on the show. I can't tell you how excited I've been for this conversation because you are definitely one of the most wise humans that I've encountered in this world. Um, and I'm really excited to share your wisdom with the listeners of this podcast. So thank you very much for agreeing to be on the show. Of course. Thanks, Eric. I'm happy to be here. So, Dr. Paul, you are an educator. You've got a doctorate in education, right? Correct. Yeah. Yes, you do. Um, we will get into all of that in a few minutes, but I would love to just start at sort of your beginning. I'd love to know, where were you born, Dr. Paul? I was born in Chicago, Illinois. Yeah, and that were, were you raised there? Not, not for long. Uh, my parents were both educators doing a lot of research, and they were teaching in universities, and Early on, they both got jobs in Washington, D.C. So we lived in a suburb in Maryland from about age four till 12. And then at 12 years old, we moved to California. Oh, nice. So tell me, from like your early upbringing, what was your schooling like? I would describe it as fairly traditional schooling. I had a relatively small elementary that was pretty typical of suburban America, I guess there was a, maybe 200 kids, 300 kids, and it was a kindergarten through sixth grade, which was very common for the grade span in those days. Moving of middle school, um, including sixth grade in the move to middle school, was something that happened in the late 1990s because of uh, congestion in the schools. So that was never really the, the plan to have that schooling uh, arrangement grade span wise. So I went to a K-6 school and then moved here after sixth grade. And the school, like I said, I would describe it as fairly traditional, very unmemorable, unfortunately. Mm. Mm. I remember friends and some social relations, and I do remember some personalities of teachers. The overall experience, I think, was very traditional of American schooling where you don't feel particularly engaged. At least I wasn't in that school. Mm. And was it the same with your middle and high schooling? That, was, you... quite a, that was an abrupt change. I moved to California, and I was uh, in a very large uh middle school, <clears throat> Paul Revere Middle School in LA Unified. It's okay to say that probably. And um, probably 2,400 students in grades seven, eight, and nine. So it felt very, very large. Wow. And I would say was that experience having been at Paul Revere. And then when I was teaching many years later in a small K-5 elementary in Topanga Canyon, my students were going off after my class, after Eventually, I had sixth graders there. We were able to add sixth grade back into elementary. I would send my kids off at the end of the year, and they'd go off to middle school. And many of them went to the feeder 
which was Paul Revere. So they were going to the same middle school I'd been to. And I would see them getting off their buses after school and they'd come in the classroom to visit me. We had a very beautiful sixth grade community and they often wanted to reconnect. And I could see um, in their eyes and in their kind of affect that they were very drained emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, and that actually, I was going to say, that's one of the things that got me interested in school reform. And uh, it really motivated me to go back to graduate school. I had a mm -hmm. master's already in a different area altogether. And then I went into um, the doctoral program in educational leadership at UCLA, really to study the question of what's going on with middle schools, and in particular, middle school aged kids, what's this mismatch that seems to be between their needs and what schools offering them. So I went to Paul Revere, and then I went to a traditional high school as well, Palisades High School, both very large, comparable mm -hmm. in size in the, uh, in the 2000 to 3000 range. And again, the experience was um, very unsupervised is how it felt. You had mm -hmm. teachers and they were in the classrooms, but the feeling in the culture of the community of the school, the grounds of the campuses was that we were kind of left to our own. It was a little bit of a Lord of the Flies experience, I would say. Yeah. So did you straight off to high school? What did you go and do? I went straight to college, which was a fairly typical route for people, especially when you're the son of two uh, college professors. So mm -hmm. I went straight off to college with very little experience of engagement with learning. And it was really my second year in college. I was writing a paper for a professor who was teaching a small seminar on Mayan hieroglyphic writing. And I, it was actually just myself and one other student. Um, and I started writing this paper and I had an experience of bringing different ideas together and feeling like I was coming up with something new. And I was very excited. It was the first time I felt as though I were learning something original and uh, that I was making some sort of intellectual contribution to thinking in general. <clears throat> so um, I'm sorry to say that that happened as late as it did when I think about how schools miss the opportunity to mentor and engage young people that I went through elementary, middle, and high school and never felt connected to a teacher particularly. I liked some of my teachers. I never felt inspired. And I certainly never would have identified myself as a scholar or someone who mm. was particularly excited about learning. So this was my second year in college. So I went, made it through all the way a whole year of college without much difference between the high school experience uh, and the college experience where I was taking mm. the classes, getting the grades. I didn't really care all that much about it. And then when I was sort of bit by the bug and learned that I had some relationship to learning that could be very activated and exciting. That really set the ball rolling. And I got very serious about my college studies at that point. And then from there, you went into the public school system. Was that your first job? Was that, what was the first job? That's a great question. <laughs> <clears throat> I graduated from college and my first job was working in a runaway shelter with youth. Wow. Uh, it was a short-term emergency shelter in Somerville, Massachusetts. And interestingly, it was my first experience actually having a sense that I was mentoring. And it was based on a conflict between these two boys that were there. They were both 16 and they were best friends. And they got in a, as often happened, they got in a disagreement that kind of had escalated. And they were just, they wouldn't even talk to each other. And in a small group home like that, where there's only nine kids and two of them are in conflict, it's pretty difficult so I sat down with my supervisor. At the time, I was really in an internship. So I wasn't doing a lot of counseling with kids. I was sort of supervising and taking them around. I was only 22. And I sat down with the, with my count, with my supervisor and the two boys. And um, they basically wouldn't really talk to each other. And 
she sort of did a cursory conflict resolution with them that didn't really get anywhere. And I, I was convinced that the disagreement they were having, which was supposedly about this air hockey game they were playing, it just didn't feel like that was what was really happening. So she was ready to dismiss them, you know, kind of get throwing her hands up in the air. And I just sort of said, wait, I, I want to ask some more questions. And I remember asking them what had happened the day before. And then they described the situation on the bus where the one kid went on and didn't pay for his friend. And his friend had said, can you pay for me? Cause I don't have any money. Hmm. Didn't pay for his friend. They were going on an outing that afternoon. We let them do that sometimes. And um, his friend didn't have any money for the bus and it created this whole situation. And he was really mad at the guy, but it was based on a misunderstanding. And it took a little bit of unpacking for them to realize that there'd been a misunderstanding. And then they kind of resolved it. Hmm. But I had that experience of feeling this overwhelming sense that I have to intervene. I have to talk to them. I have to address this issue. And mm-hmm. I remember after um, it, it worked itself out pretty nicely, the, my, my advisor, my, my mentor, her name was Kat. She turned to me and she said, wow, she said, you really should work with kids. Mm-hmm. And I carried that with me for a while. I then moved, went back to California. I lived in Europe for a little while. I went back to California and I had many jobs. I was um, especially librarian in a government library that uh, studied community college documents. And I did that for four years. Um, and I was practicing music a lot on the side. Then I got my master's degree in Latin American studies. I was very interested in what was happening in Latin America. I traveled quite a bit in South and Central America. And then I founded a small nonprofit that was doing health education work in Northern Mexico in a squatter settlement. Most of the Latin American cities have a perimeter of squatter settlements, which are very, I believe you have this in South Africa. In South Africa, yeah, 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 So I was in a community that when I started working there, just five hours from LA, outside the city of Mexicali, which is east of Tijuana, about an hour and a half. I was in a community that had no running water, no electricity when I started there. And I was working to see if I could build knowledge of um, how to address um, the health of young kids. My master's degree was in Latin American studies with an emphasis on public health and medical mm-hmm. anthropology in particular. So I did that work. I founded a nonprofit and stayed in that community for a few years. I was able to do some projects there to support those folks. And um, and then interestingly, I wasn't eating very well when I was doing this and I was working many, many late hours and I got sick, I got meningitis. Mm-hmm. And I was, I guess about 25 or 26 and uh, maybe a little over 28. And I was in the hospital and it took me about a month to recover. And after that, I realized, gosh, you know, I gotta take better care of myself. I gotta address what, what really matters to me. And I'd always wanted to play music. So I made a pretty abrupt career change at age 29 from this nonprofit work and then part-time in this specialty library as a librarian. And then I began to practice music and I uh, started to play jazz professionally. And I did that on and off for about 10 years. And I also taught piano privately. I had been a musician since I was very, very young. My parents were both musicians. They started on piano at a young age. So I went into jazz piano and it actually is relevant to the experience I have as a teacher because of the relationship to intuition. Mm -hmm. Uh, As an improvising musician, you learn to um, be very present to what's happening without analyzing it or criticizing it or reflecting too intensely on it because that interferes with improvisation in a small ensemble setting. So I um, I bring some of that into the work. So what happened actually for me was I, I injured my arms by practicing too much. Um, in particular, I didn't warm up one day and I over-practiced without warming up and I injured my right arm. And then I went to a gig that night and I played the gig with my left hand 
<laughs> I mean, be dexterous. So I was able to play wow. with my left hand, but then halfway through the gig, my left arm started hurting. And pretty soon I realized I had a really debilitating overuse syndrome that, that made it impossible for me to play piano for over a year. And mm -hmm. so I became a part-time teacher. I worked 20 hours a week as a Spanish teacher in a small private school in Tarzana in the Valley. Mm -hmm. I was living in Long Beach at the time. So I was commuting very far to this job. It was my first experience being in a classroom though. And I really loved it. As soon as my arms got better, it took about two years to fully heal. So I could go back to music full time. Um, by then my wife was pregnant. We had our first child and I didn't last long back in music. As soon as my daughter was born, I realized I needed to have a more steady source of income. And at that time, Los Angeles County had a huge teacher shortage and they were allowing people with bachelor's degrees to take a test and get an emergency teaching permit. So I simply took a, what was sort of like an SAT type test, a language arts and mathematics basic knowledge, and they give you an emergency permit. I went straight into a second, third grade classroom. And because I spoke Spanish from all my work in Mexico, I went into a bilingual classroom in Lenox School District where I was teaching a community of that was 99% Spanish speaking. The entire population of the school was 99% Spanish speaking community. Wow. I became a early elementary. I ended up in first grade and I was a first grade um, Spanish language arts teacher. And I had also other multiple subject responsibilities, but I was team teaching. And I did that for seven years until I finally got a job closer to home because we moved to Topanga from Long Beach during that stint. Hmm. And I was able to get a job at the local elementary school, which is a big shift for me to go from a very underserved community. And I, I felt a strong commitment to that kind of work. And then to sort of move into a more affluent community, I was a little hesitant at first and then realized very quickly that kids that come from more affluent backgrounds have additional kinds of needs that are also really important to address. So mm -hmm. I was really grateful that I was able to step into a fifth and then sixth grade classroom. And I taught at the local Topanga Elementary School for six years as the sixth grade teacher. And that's when I got into really yeah. observing what happened to kids when they would go off to these middle school and they were, and the kids who went to smaller schools, like private schools, they didn't look as exhausted and overwhelmed. So that yeah. really got me interested in, in going back to school. That's actually what I'd love to talk about is what you know, from your experience at the public school level, what if, what did you find after all those years of being in the public school system that was lacking when it came to children's education and their well-being? Such a great question, Erica. It was it was really evident. I, I had a very fortunate experience um, at the local elementary here because my principal really liked me and trusted me. And I didn't have a lot of interference from administration and how I was going to approach teaching. So I was able to experiment with different ways of learning that really looked at how to make a community that feels, for lack of a better word, that feels like a small kind of tribal group. And my background, my undergraduate degree, I mentioned I was working in Mayan hieroglyphics. I have an undergraduate bachelor's degree in prehistoric studies. And then I have the master's degree in medical anthropology. And then my doctorate in educational leadership was also a focus on, on the history of adolescent development, looking at it from a, from a very ancestral lens. So I have this orientation towards thinking about the fact that human beings, contemporary modern humans, actually have a very long tenure on Earth, not as modern humans. If even just to look at the modern uh, morphology of humans, um, Homo sapiens that look just like you and me have been on the planet for at least 300,000 years. Uh, and humans that could make fire and sit together around uh, the glowing embers, that's been going on for a million years. 
So when you look at humans like ourselves, who might we might call ourselves agricultural peoples or civilizational uh, oriented humans, that's a very recent shift. That's 10,000 years for farming, 5,000 for civilization. So it's a, just a drop in the bucket on our storyline. And I knew that that was important when you talk about what people of any age are looking for and what they need. And I also was raising my daughters. I had two young daughters as I was beginning teaching and we were doing what has come to be called attachment parenting, but it really comes out of the work of a woman named Jean Liedloff. She wrote a book called The Continuum Concept uh, based on research she had done in uh, the Amazonian jungle where she spent a lot of time with people and a lot of the ways that they raise children seem different from what we were doing here. And now those have become very popular ways to raise kids prolonged breastfeeding, a lot of physical contact, attending to their needs immediately when they express needs. And that these are things indigenous people do. And it really occurred to me that there's a, a lot of wisdom in uh, nature-based peoples. They have a very powerful relationship to community and to the land and to subsistence and all of these wellness practices that have become very popular now in the culture. Really, a lot of that has come out of our research in paleoanthropology. So I was, I was interested in that. And I was also, as a teacher, thinking, well, they're at this transitional age of about 12 when I had them as sixth graders. And that's the age when they're really in an indigenous culture going to go through a rite of passage. And I was very aware of what that looked like for indigenous communities. And I was aware as well that for 99% of our ancestral history as modern humans, that's how we transition from child to adult. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I gave my sixth graders a lot of challenges that I, I called them warrior challenges. And I was very clear to differentiate between a warrior and a soldier. Somebody once told me um, that a soldier takes orders from a commanding officer and a warrior takes orders from their higher self. Hmm. So I, I would talk to my students about what does it mean to have integrity? What does it mean to be part of a community? And it was probably the center of my curriculum. So when I say I had a lot of freedom and my principal really was hands off, I was trying to build and successfully doing so, it felt, I was building community. And then I was teaching academics within that context. We were also doing a lot of service work. We were doing a lot of music. I had an electric keyboard lab in my room. So I had this really beautiful relationship to the kids. And because Topanga Elementary is adjacent to the state park, or at least adjacent to mountain resource conservation land, I could literally walk to the playground and then step off the property. And I was in wild nature, much like where I have, where I have the opportunity to work now. Mm -hmm. And Topanga Elementary is about three miles from my home. If I go through Topanga State Park, I can walk on the Dead Horse Trail from the Mush Trail, and then I can cross the road and go on Greenleaf Canyon. There's a trail up to the playground. So I can walk almost completely on trails to get to Topanga Elementary. And I used to walk to school and back, and it would take a little over an hour because it's about three miles. And what was so interesting to me is I would have experiences walking in nature, especially if I did it several days in a row, where a difficult situation among my students, because sixth graders, part of their job is to create challenging situations in their in their group. Mm -hmm. If there's an adult there who can help mediate that and build community, they want to find where the edges are. So they they often had these somewhat innocuous dynamics that were challenging for them, mm -hmm. and very um, sometimes very engaging for me to figure out how I can support them. Not infrequently, Erica, I would be walking on this trail and I took my shoes off a lot because I like to be barefoot on the ground and I would be walking on the ground 
And after a few days, my feet start, my toes start grabbing the ground as I'm walking. And I would have these experiences of the solution to problems with my students, whether it was interpersonal, academic, whatever issues were on my mind, I would sort of have this clearing as I was walking. And then the solutions would appear in my mind, like complete the gestalt of what I needed to do and say, almost mm -hmm. as if I had a lesson plan just given to me. And I was very curious about this and I didn't understand it for a long time until I started to have exposure to the nature connection community. And this is a this was a whole world that opened up to me. With my Topanga elementary students, I was, as I mentioned, I was creating what I could only describe as like a sense of, of a tribal connectivity. We did a lot of rituals that I sort of invented out of thin air, including mm -hmm. the moment they walked in the door, the way we held, shook hands, the way we sat in circles, the way I spoke to them very intensely, very compassionately. And they immediately were responding to that with a lot of maturity. They they would certainly step up their game. And it was a level of uh, of connectivity and maturity and we would walk in silence. That was a very common practice. Uh, and they would have long extended periods for hours where they were absolutely silent. I would even teach without talking, like I would use sign language. And they just were experiencing the world from all these perspectives related to their senses. And then I got exposed um, very accidentally to the Nature Connection community that at the time I was introduced to it, I was principal or assistant principal at a private school, I'm sorry, at a alternative public school. Hmm. And I discovered that there was a lot of people talking about things that I was caring about, which included ancestors and um, indigenous life ways and ritual and all these things that I thought, this is just my crazy stuff I'm creating out of thin air because I'm a I have a background in anthropology. It's actually, there was a whole community of folks that were deeply invested in connecting other humans to the earth through these kinds of practices. Mm. So once I encountered them, then I began to make sense of these epiphanies I was having walking barefoot on the trail to school and having these solutions to crises with my kids. I was realizing that the earth, and this is my belief system, so I'll share it from that yeah. perspective. We are part of a living planet. The scientific evidence is plain to me. Uh, the work of James Lovelock, initially called Gaia Theory, now known um, in the academic world as Earth System Science. It's an interdisciplinary degree. You can get uh, a bachelor's and a doctorate. Stanford University, Irvine, they have doctoral programs in Earth System Science. It's the study of how the biosphere regulates all the other systems of the planet, the atmosphere, geosphere, hydrosphere. So the biosphere, the living sphere, which is a very small percentage of the rest of the planet, really, in terms of its mass, create the entire chemistry of the atmosphere, which allows us to live here and exist. Uh, and when I discovered that, and it's very um, mysterious, actually, we don't really know how it works. However, the people that do the research that I'm most interested in, in following describe the planet as a biophysiology, as a living organism. What we know about living organisms is they self-regulate and they evolve their complexity when they're faced with crises. So we're in a crisis moment. We're in the sixth extinction event of the planet. We are in uh, an irreversible climate change that is sort of crossed the threshold that's uh, going to continue to um, create droughts and refugee problems. And obviously there will be conflicts between nations. We're in a really challenging moment on the earth. And the earth as a biophysiology, as an organism, as a living planet is seeking to evolve itself to address and confront these crises as an organism. 
And it's not the same way might, we might think about our, you know, we think about ourselves as being intelligent and we can make decisions. When our body starts perspiring because we're overheated or we shiver because we're cold, that's not conscious. That's mm. our intelligence of the entire somatic being, our organism. The planet is like a large somatic being that has self-regulatory and has capacities to evolve. So I've always believed, and I've become very clear on this for myself, that the planet, to evolve its complexity and to address these issues, it has to work through the human at this point. Yeah. The human is the most consequential organism at this time on the planet. So if the if the earth were able to do something with this one organism that evolved out of it, because the human is an expression of the planetary biology, the evolution of the planet over 4 billion years of life. If it's able to activate any change in the human, my sense is it would, it would work on the area of our values, our ethics, what we might call our consciousness. Mm -hmm. And what we call it Manzanita and what David Corton and Joanna Macy and other scholars have called the great turning is this moment that we're in where humans are creating new systems, not just, as I mentioned, parenting a little while ago, like how mm -hmm. my wife and I studied attachment parenting, that as a model is very different than my grandparents did or their grandparents. And mm -hmm. that's the shift that's happening now. And in terms of human wellness, you know, we have a chef that makes nutrient dense food that's locally sourced. Mm -hmm. These sort of ways of thinking all these sustainability practices, all the environmental commitments, all the human rights movements, all the things that are happening at once on the planet, which we're calling collectively the great turning in this moment, moving away from a domination model to a partnership model. I feel like it makes sense to me that this is happening in the area of human consciousness, affecting mm -hmm. the ways we behave, the ways we treat each other, the goals that we have. It's not happening everywhere, it's not yeah. collective, but it is happening on a global scale Anywhere you go, you find movements of people at the grassroots seeking to change the systems of culture towards more egalitarian structures. Yeah. You know, is when I was born, um, it was it was illegal to be in a romantic relationship with the same gender in 17 states. It was imprisonable, and there was even a death penalty. And now, you know, we have legalized same-sex marriage in the United States. Mm -hmm. Things like that. There's so many examples of the changes. And so the thing I was going to say in this regard was if the planet is seeking to make a change to address the issues of global warming, climate change, species extinction, it's going to have the most leverage through the human. Yeah. If, if we can all collectively change. So that's sort of the great turning to me is almost like the earth's immune system activating through the human. So yeah. that was, that's the connection there. And so, yeah, I love it. And so you, understanding all of this and and just becoming wiser to all of this information coming into you you then decided what was the the moment that made you decide that you were going to create a school because you had this awakening you were doing incredible stuff in your in your class i mean i think that what you were doing in a, at a public school level as a teacher was pretty remarkable and there needs to be more teachers doing that and i feel it's amazing that the principal allowed you to do all that really really incredible work within your classroom but what made you decide that you needed to move out of that and go into trying to create your own school that's a great question. And on one level, Erica, I could take credit for the decisions and choices I make. Mm -hmm. And I wonder sometimes if, um, well, there's a there's a scientist that's been 
in the news a lot lately. I think he's, he comes out of Berkeley. <clears throat> he's a social scientist who's claiming he's he has evidence now that humans don't have free choice, that we don't actually get to make choices. I, it's a curious idea. Like in our life, do I do I make choices because I'm very intentionally, consciously trying to do something, or am I following the next thing in front of me that makes the most sense? Like I did not choose to be a teacher, right? I injured my mm -hmm. arm. Was a jazz musician. Um, and but everything I've ever done from being bilingual in Spanish to all the gifts I have, I was in I, I worked as a carpenter for a couple of years because I wanted to build a clinic in Mexico. So I didn't mention, but I worked in construction and I framed a huge condominium in Marina del Rey, like over 10 months. We were working 12 hour days. They were trying to get this thing built. And I learned a lot about the construction trade. And and so it feels like everything I've ever chosen to do has sort of led me to the moment that I'm in now. And I, I I also have this sense that I'm making choices, but that I'm also maybe guided. And as I look at it, and less as a theological kind of model, as more, I've been listening to the earth, you know, and the earth is needs us to be responsive to the moment. So that's sort of the more philosophical way to answer it. <laughs> I realized when I was in graduate school that, um, that our school model, uh, particularly the large comprehensive middle school, is so antithetical to what kids need. I was really clear on that. I, I studied human development, psychological development, adolescent development, and I looked at schools and school reform and the history of school reform. And it's been a real, um, it's been a travesty. It hasn't addressed what really young people desperately need. And essentially what they need is they need adults who look them in the eye and know them by name and mentor them. So they need something other than teaching. Um, teaching can come along with mentoring, but if you don't have a relationship with someone, that, that's trying to teach you, there's a very, um, there's a lot of limitation on what you're going to get from that. So that was clear to me. And so after getting a doctorate, it, it sort of made sense to me that I would potentially express that in the area of leadership. I looked at some opportunities to take some administrative jobs after I got my doctorate. And I ended up going into the fifth grade classroom at a K-8 alternative school. And I had an amazingly wonderful group of kids who also had a huge number of challenges and it really was testing my all of my theories mm. and um so i kind of had this last experience when i was um 100 in the classroom of really putting these things to the test and i had a principal at that school who actually introduced me to the nature connection things um and i began to bring in naturalists to work with the kids and i began to do primitive skills with them and then he left and he asked me if i would be the principal and he did it in a very clever way. He first um, worked a four-day week and asked me to be the assistant principal on Fridays <laughs> when he was with his baby at home. And then he announced halfway through that year that he was leaving, would I be the principal? And I said, yeah, sure. Um, and I took over this K-8 school. And literally four months into being the principal of this K-8 school, I was approached by a couple who had acquired the Big Rock property where Manzanita School is now. And when I say they acquired it, they were managing the property for the owner. And they had young kids and they were very interested in opening a school and they knew about me because they're from Topanga. And I had a reputation from having taught in the elementary school here. And my students, as I said, they did a lot of service related work, raised a lot of money for various causes and they were in the newspaper a lot. So my name was known because of what my kids were doing. So they came and found me at my school out in Agoura Hills and began seeking to kind of invite me away from that job in public school. And I was very, very reticent to do that. I felt mm -hmm. like I was with a school of 350 kids. How could I go off to do this 
novel idea. But I will say my wife, Jenny, who's also an educator, uh, much longer than I, we spent at least 15 years of our marriage getting up very early and sitting together, drinking our coffee outside and talking about education and mm -hmm. imagining new ways that we might teach if we had the freedom to do it our own way. So the ideas that led to Manzanita started in the conversations with Jenny and me. And um, then eventually through the doctoral studies, I, I really got a better handle on what was missing. And then being a principal, I got a little bit of experience in leadership. And then I was approached, do you want to open this school on this 21 acre property, um, carte blanche, do whatever you want. And it was very <laughs> tempting. And it took a long time uh, for me to say yes to that. Um, but I did realize at some point that, you know, there might be kids out in the world that are waiting for this educational model. So while I thought I can't leave all these kids that I'm already seeing every day for kids that I don't even know yet, I, I understood that you don't get those opportunities very often. <laughs> mm. you, know, you don't get an invitation like that very often. So it was super difficult to leave this public school after one year. Uh, and then I took a full year, Jenny and I took a full year to develop the concepts for Manzanita in more clarity. And then mm. we launched the school in the fall of 2014. And pretty much everything that's there now from stewardship to the guiding principles, to the interdisciplinary lenses, to the three central questions, to the hawk days and owl days, that all was in place before we opened our doors. We really thought it through. And I hired my first two teachers months before we opened and we were brainstorming late into the night about yeah. how we were gonna do this. So, so you went into, so Manzanita School is a nature-based nature-based school would you would you call it that if you're going to give it a, a, a brief label it's a lot more than that but <laughs> yeah I think that's a good name I would like to ask you what was why decide middle school was it just because you had seen that middle school is where where the education system is lacking the most absolutely my sense of it was that when an uh, so I was teaching sixth grade, as I mentioned, and by that moment, there was a lot of things in place already in a 12-year-old, 11 to 12-year-old, that I felt, boy, I wish I could have gotten them a couple years earlier. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time unpacking some of the damage that had been done, like anxiety, math phobia is an example of one that was very hard to address by the time they were in sixth grade. So a lot of my work in math was to um, help them feel good about math. <laughs> mm. And I knew there was other areas where they were struggling. Kids who have issues with language arts by sixth grade are also generally, they've made some decisions about how good they are at things. So uh, it's also some of them are already in their young adult bodies or already going into pu uh, puberty. So those mm. changes, once those physical changes are starting, there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the brain and the body that you kind of want to catch it before that if you can, as I understand it. Um, mm -hmm. in, in Steiner's uh, Waldorf educational model, they talk about these um, this nine-year change that happens in third grade. And uh, the school that I taught at, the K-8 school, was a Waldorf-inspired. So what basically that model says is that nine years old is when they leave magical thinking. And he's not the only one that says that. That's Eric Erickson says it in uh, Joseph Chilton Pierce and the magical child. It's, it's when kids stop believing in the tooth fairy in mm -hmm. um, maybe in Santa Claus or in uh, the Easter Bunny and things that maybe magical or wild they stop having imaginary friends usually around eight and nine years old so yeah. they're leaving the world of magical thinking and and my belief is that they're starting to prepare for mythical thinking which is mm -hmm. what 
indigenous cultures do very, very ubiquitously. Everywhere you go and find nature-based peoples, they have a way of called mythopoetic thinking where they don't differentiate the boundary between self and other. They blur the boundaries like, like they're in an altered kind of consciousness from the way I was raised. And, I, and I'm pretty clear that as we study indigenous systems of thought, as anthropology looks at the way nature-based peoples think, we can imagine that's what we would be doing if we hadn't gone through this agricultural experience and lived in a civilizational model. So I was real curious, like, what happens if we take a child at fourth grade, right at the nine-year change, and take keep them all the way till ninth grade? Um, would we be able to tend this transition in a way that allowed for deep nature immersion, deep connection with the more than human world, activate their sense of belonging to a living planet? Like, would we awaken an animistic worldview in them? Would they be more engaged academically since we know how disengaged middle schoolers can be? So we opened Manzanita in 2014 with 33 kids ages um, nine to 15. So we had fourth grade to ninth grade. And that was the intention was to address this very um, underserved age span. Um, yeah. We've done a lot of work in education to tend early elementary um, and uh, high school age kids. There's this missing window of attention, which is middle school. And part of the reason, according to Jean Lipsitz, who's an, a psychologist and, and educational psychologist who wrote about this in, is in the 1980s, he said, there's this absolute vacuum in the world of research around adolescence and schooling. And probably that's because most of us are blocking out our own early adolescence. So <laughs> that makes sense. Not true as much anymore. There's a lot more people paying attention to that age. But that was the intention. Yeah. Fourth through ninth grade. And then it just organically grew from there because the ninth graders didn't want to leave. And yeah. then um, a lot of younger families moved into Topanga and they're like, why do I have to wait four years to bring my kid to your school? So that's yeah. why we're now a K-12 school in our 10th year. It's so great. I would like you to just describe the sort of Manzanita, what Manzanita is about, because Hawk Days, all these all these different Hawk yeah. Owl Days and what the, what the school is about. Thanks. Um, I think the simplest way to understand it is to appreciate, in addition to the cultural piece, which I've described. So if you were to go observe a large middle school today, you would see a youth mediated culture. So that's where the cultural values, the language, the relational dynamics are horizontal amongst the middle schoolers. When they encounter the adults and verticality appears, there's a tremendous disconnect culturally. In fact, a lot of those kids won't even look you in the eye. I can walk through a traditional public middle school and walk by hundreds of kids who do not look at me because I am not in their cultural group. I'm an adult. I'm mm -hmm. a teacher. I'm an administrator, whatever they think I am. And that disconnect permeates the culture at large, so to say, to, so you know, as you probably know. Yes. Um, so what happens is if you have a lot of adults paying a lot of attention to kids and engaging them compassionately, consistently with clear boundaries and clear expectations, holding them to those expectations, they actually adopt what's called an adult mediated culture. So they're no longer creating a youth culture that's horizontal. They're, they're participating in a vertical culture in which everybody is placed within that cultural model, which is the ancestral model. There has never been generation gap mentality until the industrial revolution led to the kind of abandonment of villages and the emergence of, of these huge industrial cities where uh, young kids were in factories and living in dorms. Like that 
mentality is very, very antithetical to human, normal human ontogeny, uh, human unfolding. So when you just put a lot of caring adults in an environment and you mix it up with not just doing a standard curriculum, everything shifts. Mm -hmm. And one thing in particular is the feeling of connectivity. So one of the most common comments I hear when I give a tour of the school, and since we opened, I've given over 700 tours to prospective families. And I walk around and they meet kids and they, not infrequently, they're struck by those kids are really engaged. They look you in the eye, they talk to you. And um, I'm always amazed that when I walk up to a group of teenagers and they're in a robust conversation, I can walk up and they just keep talking. It's not <laughs> like they're doing something that's excluding, excluding me. And if you walk up to a group of middle schoolers at a large middle school, they all get very quiet, very quick. Because mm -hmm. uh, you're not allowed in that little window of that of the of their world, unfortunately, because they need us. They desperately need us. So essentially, that's a big part of it, too, Erica, is they need us to be in their face, asking them questions, giving them challenges, expecting the best from them. They need that every single day, because a big part of what they're trying to do is find the edges and cause trouble. And that's not a bad thing. I don't mean they're trying to like get in trouble. They're trying to figure out who they are and they have to figure out where the walls and the boundaries are. So they have to push against those things. And if there's a loving adult standing there going, I see you, I see what you're doing. I know who you are too. When they feel that they're like, that hits something so ancient in them, so ancient in them. And that was probably what I learned the most teaching sixth graders was when I looked them in the eye, they, they loved and respected me. And when I looked them in the eye and I said, yo, Hazel, Mm. what you just now that is not who i know you to be so i'm going to ask you to think about this i'm not going to tell you what to do but you're gonna have to figure out how to deal with kansas because this you're it's just on you to resolve this so when you come into school tomorrow i'm not even going to remind you but you got to come find me and tell me what your plan is so all of a sudden this kid is like on a on a vision quest you know they're feeling the pressure from the mentor yeah falling on them to step into their greatness and they know I will follow up with them and they know I will do it lovingly and relentlessly. So that kind of intensity around kids at the, at the transition age, middle school age, like sixth graders I had, they are hungry for that. And they get that a lot at Manzanita. But I think what people most understand when I explain the school to them is we have hawk days where they're outdoors and we have owl days while they're indoors. And we picked those names like we've changed a lot of the languaging of schooling, partly because of the cultural baggage. Hawks are associated with soaring and exploration and owls are kind of wisdom and introspection. So owl days are indoor literacy, numeracy, unit of study, which is our interdisciplinary science humanities course. Things that you would expect in a school you'll see on owl days. Hawk days, kids could be covered in mud, could be making stone tools, could be hiking, could be hiding in the bushes, playing a game could be sitting quietly in a sit spot. We borrow uh, for our hawk days from the wilderness awareness schools of North America that have developed the core routines of nature connection. They were articulated most lucidly by John Young in a book called The Coyote's Guide to Nature Mentoring. And he has described these activities that if you do them with humans regularly, adults or children, it builds deep nature connection. Mm -hmm. And it's not enough to be an avid outdoors person. If you don't get silent in nature, if you don't build relationship with the signs and tracks of animals, if you don't pay attention to the birds, if you don't feel the transition through the seasons, like there's things that you need to really awaken this deep connection. At least most people seem to need those things. And they include some of the ones I named, bird language, animal tracking, sensory expansion activities, animal mimicry, sit spots, practices of gratitude, 
These sorts of things awaken deep connection to the earth. So we have highly trained naturalists that take our students out onto the land of our campus and the adjacent land, which is all mountain resource conservation land. It's Southern California, Chaparral, Santa Monica Mountains, and it's a beautiful biome that has two seasons, essentially a long dry season and a potentially very wet, colder season when everything grows. Um, it doesn't spring, we do get flowers, but the growing season is the wet, cold winter. Mm. And uh, so our naturalists take the kids out and teach them how to understand the tracks of animals, teach them what the birds are saying when they're alarming. There's a predator nearby. Is that a bobcat alarm or is that a is that a potentially a snake alarm? What's that alarm? Because mm. the birds are speaking all the time and humans always paid attention to bird language. When I say always, I mentioned we've been around for at least a million <laughs> years. Um, birds are telling us where the lions are and the large predatory mammals that we want to know about. So paying attention to birds is one of these things that if you do it again, like stone tools have been around almost 3 million years. When you crack a basalt with a hammer stone and you hear that popping sound and you see that flake blade, you're doing something that is 3 million years old. It awakens DNA. It, like It's an ancestral memory. Doing these sorts of things help us to build deep relationship to the earth. And when I explain this to parents, which I'm going to do this evening, I have an orientation meeting <laughs> online. I will talk about embodied learning and cognitive intellectual learning. We humans have done an exceptional job of creating modalities to learn cognitively and to grow our intellects. And we also have embodied experiences that are often peripheral to school. Maybe it's sports, maybe it's arts. I think of a really good athlete and a really good musician as being embodied when they're in the moment of whether it's a soccer game or playing the violin. Like if they're reasonably good at it, they are not in their head. Yeah. They have to be in their head to study it, right? You have to practice usually, unless you're just uniquely gifted at it. And some people are. Mm -hmm. Most of us though have to practice long and hard. I certainly did to play piano uh, mm -hmm. reasonably well. Um, when I'm really playing though, Erica, and I'm in a gig and, and, and I'm improvising, I am not in my head. I cannot be analyzing or criticizing or reflecting or wondering or trying to impress anyone or do any of that business. It just makes the music not sound as good. So we learn when we're in embodied relationships to something that it's some it's a knowledge in the it's in the cells. So nature connection is not an environmental ethic of I care about the earth. It's being in love with the earth. It's being embodied sense of interbeing is what I like to call it. I borrow that from David Abram and Charles Eisenstein, like being in interbeing. So I'm looking out my window at a uh, one of our Quercus agrifolia, the coast live oak, and I can go sit by it. And if I'm in the right frame of mind, I can have a relationship with it and feel its presence. And it seems to feel my presence, especially like if I get into talking to it and, and I do that, I like to talk to the plants mm. and the animals and sometimes the sky and you know, if you talk to kindergartners, they're doing this all the time. They're yeah. talking to the bugs. They're talking to the trees and the flowers. They're talking to the wind. And they're not doing that because somehow they're, they're they have some maladaption. They're doing what humans do, which is create relationship with the more than human world that birthed us. So mm -hmm. that's a very natural thing. When you reactivate that in kids, they love the earth and they want to be 
tenders of the land. They want to care for the planet. They will not allow their own lives to lead to harm and destruction. It's much less likely. Mm. So they're basically developing an ecocentrism, a sense of having the entire ecology, entire central to the human experience versus anthropocentrism, which is the domination hierarchy where we're at the top and all the animals and plants are beneath us. Yeah. And um, so an owl day is seeking to build this embodied relationship. And we have another owl day. So we have two of them a week for all students. And the other one is called stewardship. And this time they're out on the land, but they're with a cross grade level group. So there's all this mentoring going on with high schoolers mentoring early elementary age kids. And they're smaller groups. And our adult mentors that are there are creating experiences of observing the land. Every one of our stewardship groups gets a zone of the property that's about two acres. So there's 10 groups, 20 acres. And the kids uh, in grades three through 12 are in stewardship. And they're tending one area of the land in an effort to make it healthier, more beautiful, more sustainable. It's based on the practices and principles of permaculture. And uh, they're getting their hands dirty. They're making soil. They're sifting compost. They're mm -hmm. doing beautification. They're cleaning. They're moving dirt and they're planting things. And one of the takeaways there is that they're having an experience that we can actually make the world better. We can be activists for mutual symbiosis with the earth because the humans, contrary to our history, have become largely parasitic to the earth. Yeah. As a, In terms of our symbiosis, we, from everything we understand of nature-based peoples, they were mutually symbiotic. They were not wandering about gathering and hunting aimlessly. They were tending the land. Um, a beautiful study by Kat Anderson called Tending the Wild. She visited um, elders throughout California who practiced uh, um, honorable harvest of wild things. And like she saw this woman collecting in this basket these seeds and she had this um, fan, uh, woven fan that she would knock the seeds off and catch them in her flat basket. And she seemed to be very careless, like spilling seeds as she was collecting. And Kat's like, why, why are you spilling half the seeds? And she says, oh, because I have to give half of them back to the land for the birds <laughs> and, the things and the for them to re-sprout themselves. So just this relationship of creating a bountiful, plentiful land that you live on was always the role of the human. So now if we take our kids out and re-establish that kind of connection to the land of mutual symbiosis, that's an embodied sense that I can make a difference in the world. Absolutely. And then our academic curriculum looks at earth system science. So the science behind a living planet, and we look at the great turning, which is the cultural study of how we're in this momentous shift in, in time and space on the earth together as a species. So the kids are doing stewardship, which directly informs, is informed by the great turning study and they're doing nature connection, which is directly informed by earth system science. And that's kind of like, that's sort of the nutshell of the model yeah. of what's happening academically, an embodied and a cognitive study, embodied happening on hawk days, cognitive on owl days, all of that within a container that's an adult mediated culture of mentoring. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's kind of the nutshell of what we're doing. Yeah. And you also have an amazing school lunch program, which is all organic, seasonal, really incredibly healthy food, no refined sugars, which is really, really not normal for any schooling in America, at least. 
Yeah, we have the blessed gift of a visionary, mm-hmm. um, Hillary Boynton, who joined us seven years ago, seven or eight years ago, when her five kids came to Manzanita. <clears throat> and she loves to tell the story. Um, so on the property where we are, there's a little pond with a fountain. And in the summer, there's a summer camp that used to stock trout in this pond, and they would catch the trout as one of the camp activities on unbarbed hooks. So they would catch the trout and put them back in the water. And they would grow to be like a foot long. And they're not a good trout to have near a delicate, sensitive ecological area like the creek that's right nearby. And when there'd be a big storm, the pond would overflow and these trout would go in the creek. And after talking to some biologists, we realized we got to get rid of these trout. So we had a big project to try to make our own net out of yucca fibers and we didn't get very far. We made maybe a two by two foot section. Then we wove netting out of some synthetic material, but we did a whole school wide project. We made this netting and we went in the pond and we caught all the trout. And we obviously didn't want to like, just, we didn't want to dispose of them in in a kind of inhumane way. So we decided we were going to catch them all and eat them. And the day that they were all in the kitchen and Chevy J our, um, who was our first chef at the school and is now second grade teacher and naturalist, uh, and stewardship mentor, Chevy was cooking up this, all these trout that we had pulled out of the pond. That was the day that Hillary came to visit the school and go on a tour. And she realized right away, this is a different place in relationship to food. So Hillary very quickly sort of stepped in when Hillary, when um, Chevy Day was clear that she wanted to be more in the classroom and less in the kitchen. And then Hillary came in and took over our lunch program. And um, she's been a visionary who sources locally Every single thing from the tortillas, she'll tell you the farm. She actually got the people that make the tortillas to do them with uh, olive oil and lard, uh, two different kinds of tortillas for our vegetarian and our non-vegetarian students. Um, She just has a relationship with the farmers and she is so passionate. So we've been really blessed. And that's something we've been able and intentionally added to the cost of tuition. We wanted everyone to eat this food. Mm-hmm. And I hear kindergarten parents saying, my child was so finicky and now they eat everything, including ferments like uh, sauerkraut and um, kefir and things like that. It's it's kind of amazing to watch the impact that it has on kids. It's relationship so to food. That's been a big blessing. Yeah. So great. Um, I would like to talk about this concept of embodied learning and the ADHD crisis that we have in the public school system. Yeah, so we opened in 2014 with 33 students. And because we were a small experiment, geographically isolated, unknown, the people that were coming were really risk takers. And we accepted everyone who applied. And in the first year, out of 33 students, we had 14, so almost half, came in with an ADHD diagnosis. And I was curious, having been a teacher and a school principal and been in many uh, special ed IEP meetings, I was like curious, well, I wonder what it's going to be like to have that many kids with ADHD. I think it would not be an exaggeration to say that if you were to talk to myself, Gabrielle, Ryan, or Jenny, the first four teachers at the school, we did not see any attention deficit hyperactivity in the first year. And I was really curious about that. And I would say that continues to be true that it rarely expresses itself like I saw it express itself in public school classrooms. And I think the reason is that when you are exposed to the natural world, you are getting a kind of sensory input that is so complex, diverse, nuanced. I mean, if you really step outside and pay attention to what's happening, 
all of your senses are being activated, your sense of smell, sight, sound, the sun is moving, the clouds are moving, the shadows are moving, the plants are doing things, there's birds, there's lizards, there's insects, there's so much going on. And my sense of it is, you know, they generally give um, ADHD kids who uh, parents want to medicate, they give them stimulants, like mm -hmm. Ritalin is a stimulant. And apparently stimulants do something to the kid's nervous system where by activating all their senses, it calms them down. My experience of nature was it activates all your senses and it acts like a very natural anti-hyperactivity um, medicine. It quite, because you're getting such an amazing amount of sensory input and you're interacting with the sensory input, right? Mm. I mean, I think the reason that stimulants work with hyperactive kids is they their body has to interact with the heightened stimulation and it tires them out and then they mm. get cold. So like their metabolism is very different than that of adults. Uh, I'm not sure of the science of it. So I, please, I'm not a medical Oof. doctor. Any stretch. This is entirely my intuition about it in relationship to how uh, nature immersion seems to act as a calming agent for a child who might be hyperactive or mm. have a attention deficit. And then they come into the classroom and they're amazingly focused. We see that consistently, that having a rhythm in your week where you're indoors on an owl day, outdoors on a hawk day, two owl days, hawk day, like you're doing this relationship to indoors, outdoors, you tend to have a more balanced relationship to the indoor experience, a much less agitated and hyperactive relationship. No child is supposed to sit in a desk for seven hours a day. That is not organic to the species. So, you know, obviously physical education is important, PE is important, movement, activities, getting out of your desks. However, if you also take them out into nature and give them that immersion in one of the most sensory stimulating experiences you can have, it tends to calibrate them. Hmm. What would you love to see happen with the public education system in the future when it comes to children? Yeah. In terms of the sort of what's the low hanging fruit? Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess I would say this, you have to pay teachers more. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, if we taxed, my dad once did this math problem with me, he was an educator and he said, you know, if we taxed gasoline the way Europeans tax gasoline, we could fund pay increases. We could literally double the pay in, the pay of teachers and double the number of teachers. Mm. Like it would generate that much money. And we don't pay teachers very well. so. What the problem that creates is sometimes there's not a large pool to select from. And if there were a larger pool, if the, if it was a more prestigious kind of job, there could be more selectivity in hiring teachers. I think teachers need to be hired first and foremost for their ability to make connections with young people, not for their ability to deliver a rigorous academic program. I think that's not the primary thing they should be good at. They should be good at that relational piece and they should be mentors. Mm -hmm. And obviously they need to have teaching skill. However, teaching skill in the absence of relational skill is harmful. You might have a bunch of kids who, you know, I mean, the old days it was corporal punishment, right? I mean, yeah. physically beat children and they would speak in Latin by the end of seventh grade. That doesn't mean that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, You can get kids to do anything if you coerce them and punish them and make, make them afraid. But that's not, that's, that's like, that's like, um, training the brain it does nothing to the spirit or to the emotions or to the integrity or to the empathy so i kind of like to see a different emphasis on uh the whole profession of teaching i think that would do a lot 
Hmm. Um, but that's a big ask, right? We're not hmm. going to start taxing gasoline like the Europeans do. <laughs> so kind of a low-hanging fruit for me would be, which is kind of what's happening in some schools, um, a, a, a report released by Harvard University School of Education. Uh, now it's, it's almost seven years ago. They were saying that uh, admissions uh, in colleges need to stop looking at test scores because that's been for many schools, the sole criteria to eliminate 90% of applicants, especially mm -hmm. the Ivy. They look at your SAT test scores. And so immediately you're getting kids who perform very high on scholastic aptitude tests. And many of them have very low functioning social skills, <laughs> many of them, at least enough of them to warrant this kind of a report that says, look, we need to be um, looking at a much broader spectrum of skill sets. Now, that report was published in 2016. I don't know that a lot of universities have adopted it, though I will say one outcome of COVID has been that uh, schools uh, had been abandoning scholastic aptitude tests, doing test optional admissions. A lot of the private schools were doing that already because they realized we got to look at something other than test scores and GPAs. We need to look at their writing, actual writing ability. We need to look at their, we need to interview them. We need to know their interpersonal skills. Mm -hmm. Can they answer the question, Erica, who am I? Yeah. You know, and that's the central question in our curriculum is answering the question, who am I? Where have I come from? And where am I going? And that report actually said they need to tell a compelling narrative of who they are to get accepted to their first choice schools. And so I think if admissions offices can begin to adopt some of that, and like I said, it's happening a little bit. We're seeing uh, shifts in admissions policies around testing. Um, I think we just need to be really honest that uh, you're wanting, as a university, you want to add value to a young person. So if you're Harvard University and you're already admitting the one-tenth of one percent of academic achievers, how do you know you're adding anything to them? What if you took like the 50th percentile of learners and you were sending them out of Harvard after four years learning at 80 and 90 percent? Then you could pat yourself on the back and say you're doing something. So the whole system of higher education, that could be something that would change because a lot of what happens in in uh, public schooling is driven by the demands of higher education, like test scores, mm -hmm. for example. Um, and the idea that parents have that my child needs to score very high on a test, get into an elite college, they'll get a really high paying job, that they'll be happy, like that is not actually logical. None of that's true. Happiness is not based on um, a high paying job. Happiness is based on actually the number one predictor of being happy is having meaningful relationships in your life. That's like the biggest one. And if you don't have interpersonal competence because you had a drill and kill educational experience and were never given social emotional skills and never did counsel and you don't have interpersonal skills, you're going to struggle in relationships. It doesn't matter if you have a high paying job, yeah. you don't pay for your, you know, therapy uh, potentially um, in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, I have the same dreams as you. I really hope that that um, uh, people make way for more than just academic success because I feel, I think coming from South Africa and coming to America and seeing how hell-bent parents are on making sure their kids succeed academically and in their sports and just this pressure that is, is put on children um, and the lack of wanting to really understand who they are on a human level and who they want to be on a human level um, was quite prevalent. Like it was quite shocking for me when I arrived and I can see it's actually, it's, it's happening in more places, in more countries, this whole, you know, this need for success 
but what is success? And I feel like your school, like Manzanita, really taps into what success truly is. And that is finding out who you are on an authentic level so that you can find that that joy within yourself because you're never going to be happy if you don't find out who you are as a human being. And um, yeah, I, I, I really hope, like you say, hopefully it's changing. Let's see. But um, Dr. Paul, I've loved this conversation. I want to finish off with my three unreasonable questions. Um, I have so much more that I'd like to ask you, but we're running out of time. <laughs> so I'm going to leave it there. Um, okay, my first unreasonable question. Okay, my first unreasonable question is, what do you think the next generation is going to teach us? Mm. I think they're already doing it. So um, it's, a, it's a great question. I, uh, I'm always struck by um, how cultural beliefs and values change over time. Um, I think they're going to become, I think they're already doing it when I say, you know, they're challenging us around our attitudes about gender. <clears throat> um, my daughters certainly have, if they're the next generation, they've been teaching me a lot about what it means, um, what the experience of a woman is to the, at least enough that I can be very humbled to say, I don't know, and I will listen and I will defer. And that kind of a learning where um, we, I, I feel like they're going to make us more egalitarian in our worldview. Um, they don't tolerate inauthenticity that much anymore. Uh, they don't tolerate the simple uh, comment because I said so, like they really want to know. And I think it's forcing us to be more mature and more open-minded. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping they're going to usher in a more egalitarian worldview for us um, mm. olders. Yeah. I think so. I think they are going to do that. I'm already seeing signs of it with my kids. <laughs> okay. What is, oh, what is one of the greatest lessons being in nature has taught you? You know, it, I, I, I guess I would say, you know, I've always kind of been a, for lack of a better word, a spiritual oriented person. I went through kind of a religious phase in my early teens. And then I kind of got into like the new age spirituality a little bit. And then I got very into political activism and I kind of lost touch with sort of like, I got a little jaded by the new age sort of, I felt it was very, very fluffy and very ungrounded, especially as I got involved in political activism. So I kind of went through a long period in my 20s, 30s, um, where I sort of, I only found sort of a deep connection to anything spiritual by playing music. In the last 20, 15, 20 years now, I'm 62, I had this opportunity to drop deeply into nature connection. And even like since Manzanita and much, much more robustly, I have finally like tracked back to my childhood when I lived in this suburb near these woods. And I'm realizing that I belong to the earth, like the earth is holding me. So I think the biggest gift of nature connection or nature immersion for me or the greatest learning I've taken away is I am part of something incredibly complex and vast and beautiful and profoundly loving. Like I do feel I'm listening to a podcast um, called The Emerald and um, it's an episode on the goddess. And I used to toy with the idea that 
you know, the gender of the deity has been largely male since the early Egyptian empire and not, not obviously not everywhere in the world, um, but the, the major religions kind of deify it in a gendered way. And so I, I played around with the idea and the feeling in my body that it's, a, it's feminine, that the creative principle of all things is, and it's such a different relationship. So I'm in this dance now where I'm, I'm really like bowing down to the great mother earth and feeling that relationship as being one of both like a mother and also like, I kind of want to court her, you know, I want to like read poems to her, you know? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, the, that's maybe where us human beings are going in our awareness of being both the male and the female inside of us and, you know, taking taking the best of both and being our best selves from that. I think that's where we, it seems like that's where we're heading. It seems like this new generation, that's why they, they're really testing these boundaries. They're testing all of these, these ideas because these labels don't suit them anymore. I think you hit on something really important, Erica. Thank you for saying that. I, I would also say that's another thing the young people are teaching me right now is our attitudes about gender and about male and female. And my hope and wish is that the way that in, I have learned, at least what I understand about indigenous ways of conceptualizing gender is there are archetypal images of masculine and archetypal images of feminine. And when rituals happen, the male-bodied play the role of the archetypal masculine and the female body play the role of the archetypal feminine, um, which have some very specific and very common themes throughout these cultures. And yet every human could be either one in their, in their feeling because we are both. So that's where you have like two spirit in na Northern Native American culture, the idea that a person can embody both genders. I feel like that it would be a future way of seeing humans kind of return to an embracing of that, right? Yeah. And for men to actually get deeply like tuned into all that, because I think that part of what drives patriarchy into the mad abyss is the it's not it's not the activation of the male principle, it's the male afraid to step into the feminine principle. It's like that fear is the reactivity against the possibility that maybe I'll just start weeping, right? Yeah. Oh no, that that's like, you know, that's that's what women do. I mean, that idea is still present for people that, mm -hmm. that attributes of feeling this is it's not male. It's not masculine. So that it's the, it's kind of the reactivity against that, that seems to drive that the, the edge of, of patriarchy. And I Absolutely. see that collapsing everywhere around us. So everywhere I see it with my sons, you know, it's so great to, to have sons that don't even know what that is. Don't even know what, stop crying you're not a girl like you can like they don't even know what it is their tears flow freely because they are emotional beings <laughs> and i feel so much for men in past generations that just haven't been allowed haven't been allowed that because that was not what men did you know and i think seeing how empowered my children are as as boys and having that emotional freedom has been so wonderful to watch you know okay my last question what is your definition you know the show is called unreasonable humans so i feel like you're a very unreasonable human in the most wonderful way and i'd like to know what is your definition of an unreasonable human 
well, you hear people say, well, that's just not reasonable. <laughs> and that often implies that doesn't fit the cultural mode. It doesn't follow from logic. I am not a proponent of everything having to follow from logic or certainly not everything being in the cultural mode of the moment. So um, I like to think of unreasonable not as irrational, although that's okay too, but more just like I will not live solely within my reason. I will live within my intuition, within my embodied sense of what is right, within my gut. You know, it's not an accident that when we say gut feeling, we're not saying brain feeling, right? Yeah. So I feel like unreasonable human is one that is um, willing to dance in the other realms and not just in the ones that we call reason. Because reason is really related to the mind, I think. Yes, I love that definition. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> I love that so much. Dr. Paul, it's been such a great conversation. It's been so insightful and so valuable for people like you to share your incredible wisdom. Um, I, I think you're such a gift to this world. And oh, thank you. I, I appreciate you so much. And I really hope that more schools like Manzanita can can be created on this planet. I, I know it's happening slowly but surely. We're coming back to what we know. You know, we're coming back to ourselves in a way. And I really hope that schools like Manzanita continue to thrive. Um, Manzanita, if people would like to um, take a look at the school, it's what is the website address? Yeah, it's manzanitaschool.org. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, just to go and see, I'd love educators, parents, even if you don't live in America, go and see what the school is doing. It's such an, a revolutionary school. It's such an unreasonable school that has been so beneficial to the community because um, it's like you say, we've, you see it in the children. They are the proof that it's working. You know, the first time I saw a Manzanita child, and Manzanita was exactly like you said. I met this child. They looked me in the eye. They were uh, totally connected to me. And it was not normal to see a child engaging like that with me. And that's when I knew that school was special because it shows. So, Dr. Paul, thank you very much. Oh. I hope that Manzanita continues to grow and blossom, and I hope that you keep doing this um, for many, many, many years to come because you are so needed in this world. So thank you. Well, thank you, Erica, for having this conversation with me and taking an interest in these things. It's um, inspiring. So thank you. Been, thank you. It's been, been a real joy to speak with you. Thank you, Dr. Paul. Bye-bye, okay. Erica. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Well, that's it for today's episode of Unreasonable Humans. Thanks so much for joining me. Please follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember that a great rating goes a very long way to support the show. Until the next one. Bye.